0: As you make your way back to your seats, also make room for anybody coming in a little bit late this morning. In fact, that's a great practice each week uh, to, if there are empty seats between you and the people beside you, uh, fill them in so that people can find a seat at the end of the row instead of climbing over you. So, hey, uh, we had a pretty exciting announcement uh, by Sean this morning. As you heard on March 3rd at 1 in the afternoon, uh, we're going to be gathering on this property for our uh, groundbreaking celebration so that we can begin uh, construction on our new home for ministry. We are uh, super excited about that. A couple weeks ago, our church family voted in our uh, once-a-year business meeting to move forward on, on this. Uh, we said at that time that our final mortgage, as it was, would probably be about $3.3 maybe a little bit more than that. And it was our hope and prayer that God would provide through being able to cut some fees or come up with some uh, reduction without costing us any functionality of the building, or that God would provide for us above and beyond what has already been pledged by the church. And so if you saw the email from our elder council, you already know this, but... Uh, Since that meeting, an additional $1 million has come in uh, for the building. Um, And so we are so grateful that God is the one who moves in our hearts and takes the grip of our fingers off the stuff that He's provided for us. And my prayer is that He would do that with me. Uh, that He would do that with each one of us, that we would be a generous people and that this building that God is providing would be filled with people who need to hear the Gospel. And so with that said, I'm going to pray and uh, then we'll begin our message. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we talk about the Gospel this morning, we want to pray specifically for our evangelism team that is going out after this service to take the Gospel to new ground, to a new apartment that has opened up for us to be able to go door-to-door offering hope, offering prayer, and sharing the good news that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose again. And Lord, I pray that they would find open doors, that they'd find open hearts, that You would work ahead of them, that You would use their faithfulness to see many Come into the kingdom to see believers who have either drifted away or just feel hopeless be encouraged and drawn back to You. Lord, work through them powerfully, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so we are in week seven of our series covering some of the essential truths of the Christian faith, and I want you to understand that the doctrines we are covering in this sermon series are essential. Like we have not been going down any theological rabbit holes and and getting sidetracked with things that are interesting but basically inconsequential. Like we haven't been doing that. Every one of these doctrines matter. Matter like they are essential, they're vital, they're critical, they're central to our faith, like they are indispensable, necessary, and required. These are the doctrines that make us Christian in our beliefs. These are the truths that have been believed and practiced everywhere, always, and by all Who are followers of Christ. Like we're not trying to be novel. We're not trying to be new. If you find a pastor who introduces new and novel ideas, run. You want your faith anchored to what the apostles and Christ taught. And that's what these doctrines are. These are the non-negotiables of our faith. And Guys, it's not enough to simply acknowledge them as true. They need to grip our hearts and they need to order our steps. Like we should be passionate about these truths. We have been entrusted with the faith. Now when I say faith, I don't mean faith as a verb or faith as a virtue. Like, wow, he's a real man of faith. I mean faith, as a treasury of truth that has transformed the world and is even now transforming the world. Like Christianity is a revealed faith, meaning that we didn't just figure this out for ourselves. We didn't make it up out of thin air. We didn't cobble it, cobble it to, together from scraps, theological scraps that we have found somewhere. It is a revealed faith. It has been revealed by God Himself. If you know anything that's true about God, it's because God has been the one to reveal it to you. In fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. So in the past, in the ancient... <laughs> Ancient past, God spoke, God revealed Himself to Adam and Eve. God revealed Himself to Noah, to Abram, to Sarah. God revealed Himself to Moses and to Joshua and to David and to Josiah and to Isaiah and Jeremiah. God is the one who reveals. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus is the definitive Word of God, the final and complete Word, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, meaning Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. What the writer of Hebrews is saying there is just like those Israelites who were gathered around the mountain and saw that glow and that fire appear and heard the voice of God and saw the glory of God, if you have seen Jesus, you've seen the exact same thing. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. God Did the revealing and he also, for this sermon series, he also is the one who did the entrusting. Like I've said each week, when I entrust you with something, it means that I've placed something into your care. I've given you a responsibility. I've trusted you with that thing or that person. And God has trusted us with the treasure of treasures, the message of the gospel. The gospel allows us to take hold of everything that we've studied so far. Without the message of the gospel, I could talk to you until I was blue in the face about the glories of heaven and how awesome it is to have a relationship with God, but without a way, a means to have that relationship, it would just be like like dangling a carrot It would be telling you just wonderful things about a place you would never get to go. But the gospel is our access through what Christ has done. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, he said, We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Like the word translated entrusted there is the same word translated elsewhere in the New Testament as faith or to believe or to trust. Paul is saying God determined that He would trust us with the Gospel, the good news of salvation. God determined that He would trust us with the Gospel, and so we speak the truth. We actually open our mouths and we vocalize the Gospel. We don't think people are going to get saved because of how nice we are. We put it into words and explain the content of the Gospel. We do this to please God even if it doesn't please anyone else. In fact, he makes that clear with his very next words when he adds, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext of greed. God is witness. Like Paul's saying, listen, I wasn't trying to build a brand. Like I'm not trying to increase my fan base. I'm not doing this for personal gain of any kind, whether it's likes from the community or stuff. That's not the point. This is His gospel. Like, this is the message of the Gospel that God has trusted us with. And yet, in the State of Theology survey that was taken about a year and a half ago, a national survey, 58% of evangelicals gave a thumbs up to heresy number four. And here it is. God accepts the worship of all religions. God accepts the worship of all religions. Implied there is, hey, it's kind of all equal here. Like you have your path, I have my path. You have your way, I have my way. 58% of evangelicals agreed with this statement and another 7% were unsure. And I'm sure you read that and people in the culture read this and think, man, that sounds so open, right? I love that. that. It sounds so pleasing to my ears and to my heart. It's like a theological hug. Right? But here's what this statement really means. Hear this, church. It means that 58% of evangelicals believe that the cross of Christ was inconsequential. That's what this statement means. of evangelicals surveyed believe that the cross of Christ was inconsequential. Understand, if there was another way for us to be made right with God, the way Jesus made for us at great cost was unnecessary and of no consequence at all. I mean, if there's another way of salvation, another way to be made right with God, then what was the point of the cross? Now this statement reminds me of a lecture I sat through with a professor years ago when I was probably 23, 24 years old. And this professor got up and said, for me, Christianity is unsurpassed but I would never say it's unsurpassable because that's the path of religious intolerance. And so he was saying, as a Christian, I'm a Christian, and for me as a Christian, there's nothing better than being a Christian, but I'm not saying that for everyone, that's just for me. Guys, that heretical teaching, and this heretical teaching is called universalism. And it is a very popular message. One guaranteed to make people feel really good about themselves as they slide into hell. You see, it's at odds with the historic teaching of the apostles of the New Testament and especially of Jesus Himself who said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way. Not a way. Not one of the many ways. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Guys, it doesn't get any clearer than that. you got to wonder if the 58% of evangelicals had even heard those words, and if they heard it, did they just not believe it? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Through me. If our sin were not a real problem, there would be no cross. The clear teaching of Scripture is that the wages of sin is death. Like you will receive one day what you have earned by your life of rebellion, and what you will receive is a second death, an eternal death. Your life of sin and indifference has earned you something, but you don't want that payday. Understand, if God did not hate sin, there would be no cross. But God has a holy hatred for sin and will punish every sin. Every sin that has ever been sinned will experience the full wrath of God that it deserves. I mean, from the cross, Jesus shouted, it is finished. Not, it was unnecessary. Or, I really hope this accomplishes something. No, from the cross In victory, after bearing the sins of the world, Jesus shouted, it is finished, paid in full. God has provided one way and His name is Jesus. See, all religion can do is, you know, give me a path to run like it's a treadmill. Like religion, I've said this so many times, is only good news for good people. Like religion gives moral people a standard that they can chase after. Like in the hopes that maybe if I run long enough, hard enough, fast enough, I can good my way to God. Like by my achievements, by my following this path or these commandments, maybe I can get right with God. I can good my way to God. But I don't know about you, guys, I'm just not that good. Like, I can't keep God's standards. I can't keep Bobby's standards. Like, how many of y'all have failed in the first week of a New Year's resolution? Like, how many of y'all have failed on a diet or exercise plan? The rest of y'all are just liars. (laughs) Or you're really unhealthy. Like, we can't even keep our own standards. We can't even good our way to us. We can't even good our way to losing 10 pounds or getting in better shape. And yet religion says if you, if you work long enough, if you work hard enough, maybe God will give you his attention and think that you're okay. But it just doesn't work because religion is only good news for good people. And Jesus said there is none good except God. On the other hand, the gospel is good news for all people. In fact, the Gospel is good news for bad people. For rebellious people. For enemies of God. For people who have no interest in spiritual things. For people who don't have a thought of trying to turn over a new leaf or repent or change. The Gospel is good news for them because if they'll simply respond to the message of the Gospel and see Jesus for who He is, and for what He has accomplished, then that message alone has the power to save them and to change them. Why? Because as I've said guys, my whole life, like I've been repeating the same statement with people either in sermons, in lessons with students, or in personal one-on-one conversations, the Gospel begins where every religion hopes to end like the gospel on day one moment one begins where every religion every ideology (laughs) hopes to end in fact i want you to see this for yourselves so please turn in your bibles to john chapter 10 if you don't have a bible there's one provided for you in the chairs in front of you a pew bible and you can just turn to page 843 in your pew Bible if you don't have one for yourself. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, Jesus is having another one of His many like altercations with the religious authorities of His day, the Jewish leaders. In verse 24, it says that the Jews, these are the religious leaders, gathered around Him and said how long will You keep us in suspense? If You are the Christ, tell us plainly. Like if You're the Messiah, if You're the Promised One, just tell us. Make it clear. Now of course, we know from the rest of the book that they weren't simply looking for Jesus to witness about Himself. They were looking for something for which they could accuse Him. But Jesus responds in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Listen, I told you and I've shown you and yet you still don't believe. And then He makes this statement. My sheep. And guys, this is a, a loaded and weighty word. These terms he's about to use, like he's pointing back to the Old Testament that he is the shepherd of Israel. Like that he is the shepherd that, that David in Psalm 23 found his comfort in. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And then what? What? He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Guys, the Gospel begins where every religion in the world hopes to end. Like this is a stunning amazing promise to anyone who chooses to follow Jesus. To those He would call His sheep. Like if you understand what Jesus is promising here, you would be saying, listen, I don't want to miss out. Like how do I become His? Like how do I become one of His sheep? How can I get into a right relationship with Jesus Christ and with God? And throughout the Gospels, there's one word that echoes that answers that question of how you can belong to Jesus, how you can be one of His sheep. And the word is believe. Believe, believe, believe. Repeated throughout the Gospels. In fact, John's Gospel ends with this statement in verse 31 of chapter 20. He says, these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I wrote this Gospel so that you would read it and that you would be absolutely convinced. Like Paul before uh, Festus and Agrippa is presenting the Gospel and explaining what happened to him, and Agrippa says, sounds like you're trying to persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul says, well, yeah. Of course. Absolutely. I wish everyone here believed what I believe. Like we're just like me except for the chains that you have me in. So what does it mean to believe? Well, to believe something is to trust in something. So believing in Jesus means to trust in Him. To take Him at His Word. To believe His promises. To believe that He is who He says He is, and that He will do everything He has promised to do. So that's what it means to believe. Believing also means to cling to Him. To have Jesus as your hope and as your defense. Like He is your only plea so that if you were to stand before God and He were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer would not be, I've really tried hard. I got baptized. I was a member at Hutto Bible Church or First Baptist or St. Patrick's. Like I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a Christian. That's why you should let me in. No, Jesus is our only plea. Like there is no reason God should let us into heaven at all except for Jesus except for what He accomplished on our behalf and the fact that He has died for our sins. To believe means to trust Him. To believe means to cling to Him. And to believe means to bow to Him. To surrender your life to Him as Lord. To repent of your sins. Turn from that and turn to Him. To allow your life to orbit around Him instead of orbiting around yourself, which is all of our default. In John chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle is explaining how the religious people of the day that Christ came for, the ones who were just like <laughs> Almost genetically programmed to receive him as Messiah. The ones who had been like reading the Old Testament for their entire life and had memorized great chunks of it. When the Messiah finally came, they did not receive him. But then John makes this promise in verse 12 to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Just in that one verse, you have the message of the Gospel. Believe plus receive equals become. Like, understand who Jesus is and what He has done for you. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. And then receive Him as your own Savior and your Lord. And then you will become a child of God. Of God. And so that's how you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you become His. And so for everyone who belongs to Him, who is saved, what does Jesus promise in John chapter 10? Well, the first thing He promises is that those who are His will go to heaven. Like that's a promise from Jesus Himself. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Like that's His offer. That's His gift. That's His promise. My sheep, they know My voice. They hear it and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life. In John 6, verse 40, Jesus said, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so Jesus like at says, at the moment you follow me, at the moment you trust in me, believe in me, at that very moment, like not later, not after you've committed and then earned, like there's no trial period. You know, it's not like 90 days and I can cut you loose. No, at the moment, day one, moment one, you trust in me, I give you eternal life. Life. You are promised that you will be with Him forever and ever and ever. The second thing He promises here is this. Those who are His will never go to hell. Understand, hell is our default. Like it's our default destination. It's not like people are born innocent and then they mess it up. They're born innocent and then their cup of sin fills up And once it's full to overflowing, all bets are off. No, we are born guilty. We are born sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And our sin has separated us from God. But what Jesus promises here, once again, my sheep, they know Me. They hear My voice and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Those who know Jesus, those who are His, will never ever go to hell. They'll never experience what the Bible calls the second death. Like you, Christian, you cannot go to hell. That's a crazy thought. Like in all eternity, everywhere you want to go, you're going to be able to go. If you want to go to another galaxy, if you want to go to some other realm, if you want to go to a planet, if you want to like camp out on the sun, sure, you can do that. But the one place in all of creation you cannot go as a follower of Christ is hell. Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Like Jesus describes you as a Christian as somebody who has already gone through the fire of death and come out the other side. you got to wonder, like if I've already come into judgment, I've already passed from death into life. When did that happen? Well, Paul explains it this way in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. When Jesus died, I died. When Jesus covered my sins, when He bore my sins, I was in Him on the cross. My sin was judged once and for all in Jesus. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. On the cross, your sin was receive the full judgment, the wrath of God. Every sin will be punished either in Christ or in eternity by you. But for the Christian, we're promised that those who are His, we will go to heaven and we will never ever go to hell because on the cross, Jesus was treated like you deserve to be treated. So that for all eternity, you can be treated as only He deserves to be treated. Number three, those who are His, Jesus' promises are eternally secure. He says, no one can snatch them out of My hand. My Father who gave them to Me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of My Father's hand. Like, who holds whom here? Like, this is not Jesus and something. Like, if I believe in Jesus and I stay on the right path. This isn't Jesus plus something. If I believe in Jesus plus I go to church, this is I come to Jesus and He places me in His hand. And then the Father covers that hand with His hand of security. This is how safe you are. Solomon writes, everything God does is perfect. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. God does it so that men might fear Him. Paul puts it this way, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot, you will not, it's an impossibility for you as a Christian to stand in God's condemnation. Paul writes, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We studied a few weeks ago about how God is immutable. He's not a man that He should lie. When He says something, He will do it. We saw in Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God could say that of us. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you Christians are never condemned. This is such an amazing promise. I know for me, as a young Christian, I read this passage over and over and over again. As an early Christian, young Christian, I got a... New American Standard, 1977 version of the Bible and just read this to the point I didn't mean to. I just memorized it because I spent so much time reading this promise because it absolutely blew my mind. And years later, when I was a student at Columbia Bible College, and I sat in my first Greek exam. I sat down to take an exam. And guys, Greek was hard. Like My GPA was stellar until I took Greek. Greek kicked my butt. It was so hard. I'd never taken a language in high school and now I'm taking this language, this ancient Greek that no one speaks where letters look so weird and pronunciations are up for grabs because you know there's no 2,000 year old Greeks to tell us the right, right way of pronouncing anything. And I sit down and the way the Greek exam went is they just gave us phrases or statements or whole paragraphs from the Bible, not telling us where they came from. And there was one big one on the paper, and he had to read it, look at it in Greek, and then translate it into English. And so I'm sitting there just sweating. Like this is so hard. I'm in a room filled with other guys who are trying to get it right. And I'm I'm looking, and I'm like, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. I'm, I'm putting a few words together, and I realize, wait a minute, I know what this says. And so I write it out. My sheep hear my voice. And they know me and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they will never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and My Father are one. I wrote it out really neatly. Stood up. Turned in my exam and left the room about 40 minutes before everybody else thinking like with these these looks like, is this guy a genius? You know, which I wasn't. i just memorized the Bible. I'm like, hey, memorize some Scripture, guys. It'd be a lot easier for you. What a great promise. Like, how secure is the grip of God? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not along with Him Give us all things. Paul writes in Romans 8, 38, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like he tacks on the end there. In case you think that maybe you missed something. Like maybe there's still something that could get in there and just pry open the fingers of God the Father and pluck you out. Paul says, anything else in all creation. Anything. The only thing that is not part of creation is God Himself, and He's the one who's made the promise that He will keep you till the end. You see, Jesus can make this promise because number four, those who are His are also His Father's. My Father who gave them to me as a gift. Son, let me, let me give you something. Here are my sheep. Here are the elect. Here are those I've called before the foundations of the earth. Here are the chosen ones. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Like having a relationship with Christ means that I'm going to go to heaven. I can never go to hell. I'm eternally secure in the hand of God the Father and God the Son. And I also get, on top of everything, a personal relationship with God. Like I love these verses so much because early as a Christian, within the first few months of me becoming a Christian, I read these and, and I thought, it can't be saying what I think it's saying. Because what I think it's saying is that on day one, moment one, I'm saved and guaranteed I'll never go to hell. I'll go to heaven and God keeps me safe. And so I remember sitting in a car at a red light with my mom as a brand new Christian, reading her this, like she had found the Bible in my bedroom. She had thought I had drugs or pornography and then found that it was a Bible and it really weirded her out, right? She could have understood the other things but a Bible? And so I'm just kind of reading it excitedly to her, and I said, Mom, do you see what it says here? Like it's saying that I'm secure forever. Like I cannot ever go to hell. I cannot be separated from God because of what Jesus has promised and because what He has done. And my mom deflated me in that moment by saying, that makes no sense at all. My mom was a very moral person, a very religious person. For most of her life, a very lost person. But when she said that, it just took the wind out of my sails. But since then, I've thought about it. For 40 years, I've thought about it. And I thought, you know what? My mom my mom was absolutely right. The Gospel makes no sense at all. The Gospel is not intuitive. I would never have figured this out for myself. Who would have come up with a plan like this if you're wanting to create or build a religion? Like, don't give away everything day one, moment one. Like, that's the worst thing you can do. And yet, that's what Jesus does in the Gospel. The gospel begins where every religion in the world hopes to end. Where does every religion in the world hope to end? Well, I want to, I want to have a confidence that, like, that I can know God in a personal way. Check. That, that relationship is completely secure. Check. I really, I really want confidence that, like, I'm not going to be judged and sent to hell. Check. And that I'll get to be with Him forever. Check. Like, this is day one, moment one of knowing Jesus. For me, it was when I knelt at the steps of the little ladder leading down to the basement of my house and prayed for the very first time. I believe that you died for my sins, and I want you to save me. Like, if you know Jesus, it means you're going to you're go to heaven, you're never going to hell. You're secure in your relationship with God and you have a relationship with your heavenly Father. You have to wonder if that's true, why didn't everyone in Jesus' day believe in Him? And why doesn't everybody get on the Jesus train right now? I mean, I still wonder that. But I think there's three kinds of people in the Scripture who miss heaven. There's those who can't believe, those who won't believe, and those who believe the wrong things. The first category of people are the ones who can't believe. These are people who aren't harsh or hateful. They're not obstinate. They're not being jerks. They just don't know what the fuss is all about. I mean, they're happy for you. You go to church. You lift your hands in worship. Hey, good for you. That's cool. But their worldview is temporal in the here and now. And it's material what they can see with their eyes. For them, not believing in Jesus is no different than not believing in unicorns. And so, they just can't believe. They just can't get there. Like their worldview doesn't allow them for answers that would surprise them. And yet, still in their heart of hearts, they have this longing for something beyond what the world provides. They can't answer the question, how do you find forgiveness? Even though they know they need it. Those are the people who can't believe. Then there's the people who who just won't believe. We see them throughout the Gospels. They're religious people. They're moral people. They believe in the supernatural. However, they, their worldview is based on their own achievement, on their own position. And the last thing they will do is humble themselves and look to Jesus and bow to Him. And so they say things like, if you just give me a sign. Just give me a sign and then we'll believe. And yet Jesus says, I've already told you and you did not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, and yet you still don't believe. Like, what would it take for you to surrender your life to Christ? But I think the largest category of people who miss heaven are those who believe the wrong thing or believe in the wrong way. First, those who believe the wrong thing. There's a lot of people in our world today who believe in themselves. They wouldn't say that. They're believing in their religion, but they're believing in their ability to carry out the rules of that religion. They're believing that they can good their way to God. And then there's those many people, especially in the West, who believe in belief. They have faith in faith. Like I'm a great man of faith. I have faith. Faith is important. you got to have faith. Faith in what? Please understand, it's not faith that saves you. Faith never saved anyone. Only the object of their faith did. Like I've always thought, you see these people in Super Bowl interviews after the game, and they're told st- something like, hey, you know, I, you, you seem to be a real man of faith. Faith seems really important to you. If I was interviewed in a situation like that, first, I would be like a great athlete, which would be pretty awesome. <laughs> But if somebody ever came to me and said, faith must be very important to you, I think I'd respond, uh, no, not at all. However, uh, the object of my faith is a really big deal. See, my faith is weak and wimpy. My faith is not powerful. My God is powerful. Jesus is powerful. Like I've talked to so many people, including those in my family who've gone through 12-step programs through AA and others, and they've been told that they need to get in touch with their higher power. And it doesn't matter who your higher, higher power is. In fact, it was my brother John who told me the first time, and I've heard this multiple times since then, that the leaders of those groups will say, hey, you can say that that doorknob over there is your higher power, and that's okay. Like, that can be your higher power, but you need something outside of yourself. And I've always thought, Wow. If your faith is in a doorknob, then you have a much bigger problem than just alcohol abuse. Like you have an eternal problem. Like your faith cannot rescue you. Only the object of your faith can. Faith doesn't save us. Jesus does. And then there are those who believe, but they believe in the wrong way. They believe in Jesus like they believe in Columbus. Like, I know he was real, but it, like Columbus, do you ever, I mean, do you go through your day thinking about Columbus? Like, the only time I think about Columbus is on Columbus Day and think, why don't, like, why doesn't the office close on Columbus Day? Right? Why am I at work when the banks are closed? It seems wrong. They're not picking up my mail, but I have to be at work. Like, that's the only time ever that I think of Columbus, and there's a lot of people who believe in Jesus, but they believe in him like they believe in Columbus. Merely giving mental assent. They believe, but they don't receive Him as the Savior and Lord of their life. They believe, but they don't bow to Him as Lord. Do you believe? Have you bowed? Because the gospel begins where every religion in the world hopes to end. This is how the Westminster Confession of Faith explains the doctrine of justification. Those whom God calls, He also freely justifies by forgiving our sins and by counting and accepting us as righteous. We are not justified because of ha- anything done in us or done by us, but solely because of what Christ has done for us. God does not justify us by declaring that our faith or our obedience count as righteousness, but rather God justifies us by declaring that the obedience of Christ and His payment for our sin by grace count as ours. So have you believed? Many people might think at this point, I mean I would, but I still have so many other questions. Here's what I want you to understand as we close. You don't have to understand everything to believe in something. Like i love I love what the Psalmist King David writes in psalm one thirty one he says, "O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great for me, or too marvelous for me. That's David's way of saying i don't I don't try to figure things out that are above my pay grade. I just trust in you. you don't have to understand." everything to believe in something. And so let me close with this. During the Super Bowl, if you watched it, some well-meaning Christians spent millions of dollars to run an ad telling us that Jesus gets us. How many, how many of y'all saw this ad? The tagline was, Jesus didn't teach hate, He washed feet. Which is a pretty... Easy going message, honestly. I mean, to me, that's the equivalent of saying Jesus didn't kick puppies. Like, I don't expect Jesus to teach hate or kick puppies. But I think these believers were very sincere. They spent millions to run this ad. And I know that they meant well. However, I think, I think that this would have been a better ad for them to run. Amen. Jesus doesn't get just get us. He saves us. He transforms us. He cleanses us. He restores us. He forgives us. He heals us. He delivers us. He redeems us. He loves us. You don't have to understand everything to believe in something. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we pray again for our team as they go out in just a few moments to bring the gospel to this new apartment complex. Lord, I pray right now for those in this room, if there's anyone here who is yet to respond to the gospel, who have no faith or a shaky faith, who have no sense of security and no assurance of salvation, Lord, I pray that even now, they would take their weak and wimpy faith and place the, place their trust in You. Father, we know it's not the faith that saves us, it's the object of our faith. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ or you have no assurance, tell them that. Tell them that you need Him. That you believe that He died for you, that you don't understand it all, but that you understand enough that you know that He died in your place and that He rose again. And in the quietness of your heart, just tell Him that you need Him, that you believe in Him, and ask Him to save you, to make you the person He wants you to be to be the Lord of your life. Turn from yourself and your sin and turn to Him. Father, this table I stand before is an object lesson of the sermon I just preached. Because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, we're going to go be with Him forever. We'll never go to hell. We're secure and we get to know Your Father because Your body was broken for us and Your blood was poured out for us. Bless this table now for the spiritual nourishment of Your children. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.